You are listening to a sermon by Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A dot com. I'm going to try to kill two birds with one stone today. Um, I'm going to try to close the loop on on the short series that we started and never finished on the vision and mission of new life. Uh, and w- at the same time I'm doing that, I'm, I'm, I'm going to kick off this brand new series, as James said, in the New Testament book of Acts. It turns out that this the beginning of Acts is appropriate for both. For both. So um, just remember the vision of new life. Uh, our, our aspirational goal as a church is expressed in Colossians 1.28 to present everyone mature in Christ. And uh, so how do we do that? Well, we, we do it through a three-pronged mission, right? Part one, we, we worship the God of the gospel and we, we, we unpack that. And part two is that we grow in grace together as a church and, and we unpack that. On uh, the third part, uh, and what we're going to unpack today, is we communicate the changeless Christ to a changing culture. Right? And we're going to look at that part of our mission statement um, here as we look at Acts chapter 1. First part of Acts chapter 1, Acts 1, 1 through 14. It's printed for you in the bulletin if, if, you, if you don't have a Bible with you. Um, and because of the length of the reading, I'll have you stay seated. Um, and let's just give attention to the reading of God's word then. Acts 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. My granddaughter saying hi, Papa. Uh, and while staying with them, uh, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. 
Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. This is God's word. Let's, uh, let's pray before we uh, unpack it. Father, I uh, pray that you would speak to us now and convict us of our sin. Encourage us by your steadfast love and inspire us to testify about the good news of Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we call it the book of Acts, or more fully the the book of the Acts of the Apostles. But actually, that's misnamed, right? And the, the, the names are not part of inspired scripture. Those have come down to us from tradition. Look at verse 1, uh, where the author, who is Luke, uh, writes, in, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So his first book, which, uh, which we know as the Gospel of Luke, was according to its author, Luke himself, dealing with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And now he's writing his second book, volume 2. And so what is it? About Well, if volume one is about what Jesus began to do and teach, then what do you think volume two is about? Right? It's, he's clearly communicating that volume two is about what Jesus continued to do and teach, right? So the book of Acts, no less than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, or any of the other New Testament epistles, uh, or for that matter, any of the books in the Old Testament, as Jesus told us, they are all about him. Uh, so is indeed all of the New Testament, including Acts. I suppose uh, if we're being accurate, we should uh, probably title it the book of the Acts of Jesus through the apostles by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's a little cumbersome, uh, kind of like a Puritan title. Um, the, the point here isn't the, you know, what we call it. The point here is that even though Acts starts with an act of Jesus that, that makes it look like he's spiritually checking out, Right? What, what James found so funny. Right? He's raised, he's been reunited, but now he's disappearing. Um, uh, and and he, he, it looks like he's spiritually checking out and leaving behind the apostles to do the work and to, uh, you know, to be the examples, to be the heroes. But that's not precisely what's happening. Uh, our focus needs to be, as Luke's is, on Jesus, uh, on what Jesus is continuing to do. Um, and and as, if that's our focus as we get into Acts, you and I are going to find, that's where we're going to find our strength. That's where we're going to find our courage. That's where we're going to find, uh, as it says in Hebrews, the gr- m- m- grace to help in our time uh, of need. So, uh, just two points here as we're preparing to come to the Lord's table. Point number one, the necessity 
of Jesus' ascension, the necessity of Jesus' ascension, and then point number two, the necessity of your testimony. The necessity of your testimony, okay? So, first, the necessity of Jesus' ascension. We don't talk about the ascension much, do we? Uh, I think in part that's because we're a little embarrassed by it. Uh, It is unabashedly supernatural. uh, And it is sort of an awkward scene. uh, Made more awkward by by many of the stained glass depictions of it that I've seen, that you have perhaps seen. Uh, The disciples there uh, reverently gazing into the sky. And there's a cloud with the feet of Jesus sticking out of the cloud. All you can see uh, of him. You know, it's, it's, we're a little embarrassed by this thing. And, and in part, I think we're confused by it. We're not, you, you, we're not sure what's going on here. I mean, I, you know, a good question is, wouldn't it be better if, if Jesus uh, stayed on earth, right? He's, he's raised from the dead. Why not stay here? Wouldn't that be more convincing? Wouldn't that be more faith building? I mean, there's Jesus. We, he's alive. He's alive forever. We see him. We can see him with our own eyes. But, but as I've studied the ascension and I've had the privilege of sort of reflecting on it in, a, in a, an extended way here as I've prepared something I haven't really done before, I've, I've come to realize that the ascension is, is absolutely an essential part of what Jesus, uh, uh, Jesus' mission. It, it's, it's the natural conclusion to what Jesus has done right up to the ascension. Uh, and it is absolutely essential for us, uh, for, for you and for me, because what the ascension does and this is where it gets practical, is that it, it, it actually, I, I don't know quite how to say it, it actualizes Jesus as your king and as your high priest. Now that might sound a little bit kind of highfalutin and removed from, from your experience, but it isn't. Uh, let, me, let me show you how. So first of all, think about Jesus as your king. Um, if you were here not so long ago when we were going through the book of uh, Daniel, you may remember that Daniel had a series of visions, was given a series of night visions. And one of those visions recorded in Daniel 7, uh, one of his most famous visions, Daniel 7 verses 13 and 14. And in that vision, Daniel saw uh, one like a son of man and, and which means well, he appeared to be a human being, uh, but this human being was approaching the ancient of days, right? God himself on a cloud, in a cloud, surrounded by uh, uh, clouds. And as he approaches in these clouds, this son of one like a son of man, he is uh, given... Uh, a, a throne. He's enthroned and granted an eternal kingdom. Right? It's a it's a gr- great vision. And a, as I reflected on the ascension and that vision of Daniel, I've come to realize that what Daniel saw in that vision centuries before it happened was actually the ascension. 
the, the ascension is the fulfillment in, in real time of, of Daniel's prophetic vision. Jesus was doing exactly what everybody at that time would have expected a king to do. If a king wins a victory, if a king is the savior of his people, he, there, there's, there's usually some kind of a ceremony and he ascends onto his throne. Right, uh, and uh, and and he's hailed as the victorious savior king, and that's ex- you know the, while that happens with human kings, it's it's exactly what what's happening here uh, with Jesus. But it still raises the question: Well, why why in heaven? Right? I mean, uh, other than the fact that that's you know it's that's what the prophecy. Why in heaven not, and not earth? And I think there, there are two reasons. First of all, I mean, we have to begin to think of heaven in a, in, in a more sophisticated way as other than someplace up there, right? That, that heaven is, is some locality in our own time and space, um, right? It's, it, but we tend to think of the ascension as just sort of Jesus gaining altitude, right? Uh, and, and perhaps changing his GPS position, right? Just, just sort of relocating into another part of, uh, of our reality, uh, you know, sort of like, like the ad says, you want to get away? You know, well, Jesus, Jesus gets away to some remote corner of, uh, of, of our dimension. But that's not really what's happening. Jesus is, is moving from, from one natural world, our natural world, to another, another natural world, but it's a precursor of the world to come. It's, it's different. It's a different dimension. Things operate differently there. In, in where, where he is in heaven, Jesus can nevertheless, this is, and I'm quoting Tom Wright here, Jesus nevertheless can be present simultaneously anywhere and everywhere on earth, even though he's in heaven. So he's, because of that, because he can be simultaneously anywhere and everywhere also on earth, he's available and accessible without people having to travel to a particular spot on earth to find him. Right? That's, so that's one good reason why Jesus is enthroned in heaven instead of, say, in Jerusalem. The second reason why Jesus is in heaven, is, as Tom Wright reminds us, is that, is that heaven is essentially the control room of earth. It's, it's like the Oval Office, just more important. Right? Remember what Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Heaven is the place where Jesus exercises that authority. He exercises that authority in heaven over earth. So the ascension means you, you've got a king who is simultaneously anywhere and everywhere on earth and therefore available and accessible to you and he has all authority. He's in control. That's your king. That's a practical thing to know. Now, think about the ascension as it relates to Jesus, not as as your king, but as your high priest. Um, 
And here's, this actually shows us the value of reading remote books of the Old Testament. I remember listening to a talk show one day driving to work years ago. And the, the, it was a secular talk show uh, out of L.A. But the topic was, is there any humor in the Bible? Call us and let us know where there's humor in the Bible. So I'm, I'm driving to work, and I'm, this is when I was still practicing law, and I was listening, and, and uh, one guy checks in, it's Steve. And I know Steve. Here's Steve calling from Newport Beach. I go, I know Steve. This guy's in my small group. And he goes, Steve, you got something funny in the Bible? He goes, yeah, the book of Leviticus. They didn't understand. I wasn't sure I understood, but that's what he said, the book of Leviticus. Uh, I mean, it's funny in the sense that you read it and you go, what am I reading here? Right? Um, all this stuff that, again, seems remote to our experience, all these things that the priest has to do. Uh, but... If you read Leviticus, and particularly you read the priestly regulations about what the high priest had to do on the Day of Atonement, what, I, what, what, what you come to realize is that what the high priest did on the Day of Atonement was telegraphing what Jesus would do on the Day of Ascension. It's, it, it really is, I mean, again, the whole, all of the Bible speaks about Jesus. And here, just at, here, here in what the priest does, he's, he's, tele, he's telegraphing the, the ascension. Listen, listen to this, um, um, how it just matches up beautifully. Think about the Day of Atonement. One day a year, outside the temple, right in front of the temple, the, the high priest sacrifices a lamb, right? But the, the, the sacrifice doesn't end with killing the animal, right? Because what happens then is that the, the blood is collected and the, priest has, the high priest has to take the blood and... And, and what does he do? He ascends the steps of the temple uh, with the blood and, and, and he goes into the temple. But as he goes up and ascends in the temple, what he runs into are these billowing clouds of incense smoke that, that, that's burning in the temple. And he disappears from view into those clouds of incense carrying the blood of the sacrifice. And, and he goes in, once he's out of our sight, he goes in to the temple, into the very Holy of Holies, right? And presents the blood to, to the Lord, right? In the, direct, in the presence of the Lord. And then what's he do? He prays, right? He intercedes for the people. As, 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 the, as the high priest. But it doesn't stop there, right? Once that's done, the, the high priest then emerges. He comes out uh, uh, of the Holy of Holies and he comes back through the cloud of incense down just in the same way that the people saw him leave, right? And, and, they, and he assures God, that, or assures the people that God has accepted the sacrifice, that their sins are forgiven, that their salvation uh, is assured. Do you hear the echoes in, what the, in the, what the priest is doing on the Day of Atonement of, of the ascension, right? It's, it's a beautiful picture of exactly what's going on in the ascension, not with Jesus ascending as king, but this time ascending as high priest. Right? Now, I didn't make this up. It's actually in the book of Hebrews. 
If you, in the New Testament book of Hebrews, chapters 6 through 10, the author of Hebrews makes this whole connection and makes, runs for four chapters, just sort of unpacks the beauty of this. It's unbelievable. And, and, and so Jesus is, is, is doing exactly what the high priest did, only for real, right? Taking his own blood into the presence of the ancient of days. And he is there still right now praying for you, interceding for you. Jesus interceding for you. And like the high priest, uh, he is going to come back someday, right? He is going to return in the same way we saw him go, as the angels say right here uh, in Acts chapter 1 and close the loop on his cosmic salvation. So, bottom line, friends, the ascension means, and this is why it's so essential, um, the, 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 for you as a Christian, that you are serving right now an authoritative, powerful, accessible king. Right? He's accessible to you. Uh, he's got all authority. He's sovereign over what's happening on earth. And that same king is also your high priest whose sacrifice has been accepted. Right? The very blood of, of the Son of God. And he is praying for you. And his prayers are always answered. I hope you see, I want you to see the fear evaporating, confidence building power that the ascension is for you and for me. And by the way, what's really cool about the ascension is that at the center of the universe, right, we're at that nexus point in heaven where all authority is lodged, right, that is controlling the earth and the planets, right at the center is not just God, but there, it's, it, there's, it's, it's God who is also simultaneously human. Right? The ascension, you know, we confess as Christians the bodily resurrection from the dead, that Jesus rose from the dead as a body. If we confess the bodily resurrection, we also confess a bodily ascension. It's not that Jesus was raised as a body and then became a ghost in the ascension. Right? He was actually raised up, ascended up, enthroned as a human being in heaven. So at the center of this, we've got, there's, there's one who is the God-man. God and human. What, what, what does that mean? Well, it means at the center of the universe, there's one who understands you. There's one who gets you. There's one who feels you. There, there's one who can, uh, knows what you're going through. Um, and, and it also means that your humanity... If Jesus is your king, your humanity, as messed up as it is, as messed up as my humanity is, right? As far short as I fall from, uh, from, of the glory of God, my humanity will not keep me from God. Why? Because there's a human being in heaven who humanly did everything necessary for your salvation and mine. 
So our humanity, as, as weak and erring as it is, will not keep us from God, will not keep us from His life. Now, I hope you can appreciate at this point why I wanted to deal with the necessity of the ascension before I dealt with the necessity of your testimony. Right? Um, because for many of us, right, the idea of witnessing or sharing the faith or what uh, uh, evangelizing, uh, that's something that we feel anxious about, uh, something we're uh, afraid of doing, something many of us avoid. It's something about which we have been made to feel guilty because we don't do it or we don't do it enough or we don't do it well enough. And I want you to, I wanted you to see before we even got into the idea of being a witness for Jesus, that, bef- that, that on our side we have, we have a king and a priest right? who loves us and is uh, working uh, for us. Um, uh, so that gets us to the second point, the necessity of your testimony. Um, so verse 8, right before Jesus descends excuse me, ascends into heaven. He commands his disciples, you shall be my disciple, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So what the book of Acts is telling us that Jesus continues to do is grow his kingdom, right? To expand the reach of his kingship. And the way he remarkably chooses to do that is through his people, through you, me. Empowering you and me to be his witnesses in the world. That's how it works. Now what does it mean? Let me just, let me just make four points quickly about witnessing that I hope will be helpful here. Um, first, notice that Jesus is calling the disciples and now you to be his witnesses, not his teachers, not his preachers, not his evangelists, not his theologians, his witnesses, right? Listen, if you're called as a witness in a courtroom, what do you do? Well, you, you just, you, you simply and honestly, I hope, tell what you know. That's what a witness does. There's been only one time in my life where I was subpoenaed as a witness, uh, not, not to appear in a courtroom, but to appear in a deposition. And I was anxious about it. I was fearful about it. I'd never been deposed before. Now, I was just a witness. Uh, I wasn't one of the parties here, but I, you know, I had some knowledge. I had seen some things. And, and so they, I was subpoenaed to tell what I know. And, but I was, I was sweating it. And until one of the lawyers that was involved says, you know, you're a witness. I mean, you don't have to do anything, right? Except go in there. Be honest and just straightforwardly and honestly tell them what you know. Right? Answer their questions. Tell them what you know. It's, you know, pretty simple. And, um, you know, that kind of took the fear away. Yeah, that's right. Um, 
And, and so, the, and that's what we do as, wit- as witnesses of Jesus, right? We testify to what we know that Jesus did and taught, right? As, as, as we carry on the apostles' witness to our generation. That would include, right, the things mentioned here early on in, 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 in this chapter in verses 1 through 3, right? Jesus lived, he suffered, that suffering involved his dying, uh, but the dying wasn't final, that he, he, he was raised, he was resurrected to new life from after dying, and presented himself over 40 days to many witnesses by many convincing proofs, and now he's king, Jesus spoke much about the kingdom, taught much about his kingdom. Now he's ascended to his throne. He's the king and he's in the process of growing his kingdom. That's what we know. That's what we, that's what we testify to. Now I've been helpful. But I read a, a, an interesting book, um, my time off with, by Miroslav Volf, the uh, Christian uh, scholar at Yale. Uh, it was a book, it's been out a number of years, it's called A Public Faith. And, and in, in that book, A Public Faith, he gets into witnessing because that's, of course, a public dimension of our faith. And, and, and he, does, he did something that I thought was helpful. He, he kind of explained what witnessing wasn't and, uh, or isn't. And, um, and he says, that I'll, I'll give you these four things. He says, first of all, he says, you know, witnessing is not imposing your view on somebody. It's, it's, it's simply pointing them to Jesus. Uh, he pointed to, Wolf mentioned a painting uh, that I wasn't familiar with that I looked it up. It's, it was painted in 1515 before the Reformation and it's a, and it's a painting of, uh, by Grunewald and it's a, the crucifixion and standing next to the, Jesus is John the Baptist, a little anachronistically. He would not have been there, of course. He was dead at the time of the crucifixion. But there's John the Baptist. And what is John the Baptist doing? He's pointing at Jesus. Right? And one of the things that Grunewald did was paint his figures disproportionately to kind of communicate importance. And so John the Baptist has this huge hand. Just boom pointing to Jesus. He says, that's what we do. We don't impose our view. That's not, witnessing is not imposing your, uh, uh, what we know t- to be true of Jesus on people. We're, just, we're pointing them to Jesus. Um, and he also then went on to say, witness isn't selling. Right? You're, you're, a witness isn't in the business of persuading. A, a witness is, or selling, right? A witness is, is simply freely and openly, transparently giving information, right? If you're selling something, what happens? You tend to, you tend to, you know, sand off the rough edges. You tend to put forward the, the, the easy things and sort of hold back the hard things, right? Um, uh, you try to make the message more palatable, you think, to what you, to, to your hearer. Now, that's not what witnessing is. It's just a straightforward testimony about what Jesus did, what Jesus taught. Uh, he, he says, witnessing is not neutrally passing on truth. It's, it's passing on truth while participating in the truth. 
Some of you have had the experience I've had. If, if you've been to college and had a religion class, you, you might have had a religion class where your professor was very proficient at, at passing on truth of, about what Jesus did and taught. Could, I've heard some of these religion professors who could explain the gospel better than a lot of preachers. Problem is they didn't believe a word of it. Right? They weren't participating in, in the truth that they were proclaiming. A witness is one who tells the truth about what Jesus did and taught and is also committed to Jesus, right? Living for Jesus, submitted to Jesus as your risen King and Savior. And not perfectly, right? It, but uh, we're, um, we don't... Uh, it's, but but there there should be a you know a, a some kind of a match between uh, you know your words and your life, right? If you're if you're testifying to people at your office about about uh, the truth of Jesus, and at the same time you're acting. Uh, like everybody else who are not Christians in your office, right? You know, um, maybe you're uh, blame shifting, right? That's pretty common in a workplace, right? Some some deal craters or whatever, and right, you, the, whoever's responsible often, you know, is madly blame shifting. He does, you know, it's everybody else's fault, not mine. Um, you know, uh, but a, a Christian, you should, you know, if you blew a deal, man, you, you, you man up and you, and you admit it. And, uh, you know, you have that kind of integrity. I, you know, it's not like you have to be a perfect saint. That's not what I'm saying. In fact, um, often it's our, it's our willingness to own up to our sin and our imperfection and maybe even apologize to the friends that we are witnessing to for how we've blown it, right? It's like, like parenting. People ask me, you know, what, what, what was your, your secret to parenting? I said, I think it's apologizing. <laughs> yeah, I think the best parenting I ever did was when I, when I was apologizing to my kids for my lousy parenting. Um, and you know, the, there's a there's a place for that as as Christians, as we you know own up to our own sin conf- and confess it, even apologize for it. But 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 what I'm saying is that right, a, a witnessing is not just saying the truth of Jesus; it's living it, it's being dedicated to it. Uh, and then finally, he says, witnessing. Miroslav Wolf said, witnessing is not mid being a midwife and I didn't understand what he meant but the idea was you're not birthing something out of the person you're witnessing to right it's not like you're you're getting them in touch with with what they innately know about Christ and sort of getting in touch with the divine within right you don't witnessing is 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 not drawing um you know, something from people, you know, Christ who's already in them somehow, it, it's pointing them to Christ who's outside them. That's what, it's, it, you're pointing to what Jesus did and taught in time and space, in history. Right? 
It's not something that's, that, that's in, in them. Okay, so that's witnessing, right? We're, we're called to be witnesses. Nothing else. Second, notice that you, to, to do this witness, you don't have to be theologically sophisticated. And, and my proof of that is the disciples. Right? Verse 6, uh, right? They, they completely de- betray after three years of being with Jesus. They're still clueless. They still don't understand his mission. Uh, they, they, uh, uh, Calvin said that the, the, their, their question to Jesus right, has more errors in it than words. Um, so it's, uh, you know, they were, they had a small view of Jesus and the Messiahship. He was going to be the political ruler of Israel that was going to defeat Rome. Uh, but Jesus says, no, no. Yeah, yes, it's about Israel. But it doesn't stay with Israel. It goes out from Israel as has always been contemplated. It starts with Israel and continues to include Israel. But, but, but grafts it into Israel out to the ends of the earth, right? Um, and so you don't need to be an expert. You don't, you know, it's, it's easy to sort of beg off of witnessing. Well, I don't, you know. I'm not very theologically sophisticated. I don't know the answers. Look, if we knew all the answers, we'd be God. And the the original disciples were not theologically sophisticated. Third, giving, bearing witness to Jesus is not something you do alone or something you do in your own power. And that's 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 encouraging. That's that's Jesus in in verses four and five when he says that's why he says wait in Jerusalem. Don't do anything until you've been baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is ascended. Then the Father and Son just pour down the Spirit onto earth. The Spirit unites with the believers. Uh, and in uniting with those believers, what's He do? He powers them for witnessing. Powers them. You will receive power to be my witnesses. Um, same thing if you're a Christian you have that same spirit you have that same power uh, you know it's always easier to do something hard if somebody else goes with you right I was proud of my son you know when when he had a friend who who needed to go make an apology didn't want to do it it was going to be hard it was going to be awkward knew it was the right thing to do and Jim said I'll go with you I'll go with you and you know that made it easier for his friend to to then do it's even better if the one who goes with you isn't just moral support but actually has the power to enable you to do what you need to do and the one who goes with you is the holy spirit himself right um and and a stunning implication of this truth it's all it's so stunning it's almost unbelievable that that you are united to to the Holy Spirit, that He is giving you power to witness to the tr- truth of Jesus, so that when you give testimony about Jesus, people hear Jesus. When you testify about Jesus, they hear Jesus. And a 
text that demonstrates that is Paul in Ephesians, Ephesians 4. He's talking to the Ephesians. They're in Turkey. They never knew Jesus. Jesus never visited Turkey, never saw him, never heard him. Um, and yet, as Paul's writing them and he's, and he's, and he's talking about how they came to know Christ, and he, and he says at one point, that's not how you, know, you came to know Christ, assuming that you heard about him. That's what our translations say. But in the Greek, the word about is not there. The translators put it in there because they think we'd be confused. Because what Paul says is, that's not how you learned about Christ, assuming you heard him. They go, well, how could they hear him? Right? They never saw him, never heard him. Jesus was never there. They heard him because the disciples, the apostles, witnessed them about Jesus and in doing that because of their union with the Holy Spirit and the power given by the Holy Spirit those people that were witness to heard Jesus and it's the same with you now you don't you know that's it's, you don't make that happen right the Spirit does and it's belie- and it's not like guys that the Spirit's going to come upon you and, and you're, maybe you're sitting out there questioning, well, I'm not sure the Spirit's come upon me yet because, you know, God, I'm not very eloquent. Well, I'm not either. I mean, no, right? It's not about personal eloquence. Paul was self-admittedly not eloquent in his speech, very eloquent in his writing, but was not so eloquent in his speaking. Uh, we know from church history that there have been countless preachers uh, who have not been particularly eloquent but have been powerfully effective. Why? Because it's not about personal eloquence. It's about the power of the Spirit. Right? God loves to do His strong work through weak, stammering people. That's me. That's you. And that's, and that's because when that happens, they see the truth. They see God. It, you know, sometimes eloquence is, works the wrong way. You think it's going to be the right thing. Um, and, and we all want to be eloquent, so we'll be persuasive. But, you know, I know lawyers that will not put, you know, who have decided not to put very eloquent witnesses on the stand. Why? Because they're too smooth, too slick. So slick, so smooth, that they are kind of looked at like, you know, not sure you're, I think you're trying to sell me something, right? As opposed to a a witness who may not be eloquent, but just gets up there and just simply, plainly tells the truth. Finally, fourth, at the end of the day, what... You know, this is part of our mission as a church, to communicate Christ to the culture. Why would we do that? What, what makes us do that? Well, first of all, I suppose if we're a Christian, Jesus command us, right? That, that certainly moves us to do this. Jesus has commanded us to be his witnesses. Verse 8. Um, uh, the... Um, but it's not just the command to witness. He's also commanded us to love our neighbor. And, and, and part of loving our neighbor, part of loving your neighbor, is certainly testifying to them about the fact that they, there is a Savior King of the universe whose name is Jesus. 
who came to earth uh, uh, as a human being, who lived for them, died to pay for the penalty for their sin, rose from the dead so they could uh, live and is now reigning in heaven and is in charge of their lives, whether they know it or not, and he's up there interceding for them. Part of loving your neighbor is letting them know that, right? That moves us to do it. But you know what ultimately moves us to do it? God in us. God's the Jesus is the great shepherd. Jesus has a greater passion for his people than I do. I get jaded, I get tired, I get cynical. I'm Jesus doesn't. And 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 Jesus has has a passion to go after each and every one of his people, each and every one of his sheep. And, and, and that's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, it's, it's the love of Jesus in us which compels us. Right? It's, not, it's not us that's doing it. We're being, it's like we're being kind of moved along by the fact that, we're, that, that, that Jesus is moving in and through us to get out to his people. Uh, at, that's why uh, at verse 11 the angels and that presumably they're angels those two men in white uh, re- you rebuke the disciples that's a gentle rebuke isn't it right why are you standing here looking into the sky right in other words hey hey there's testimony to give here you, got to, you don't stand around here. You've got to move out. There's people that need to hear your testimony about Jesus. Get moving. Get busy. Right? Um, and that's why uh, also it, it, it says that, uh, um, you know, in Acts, we'll see it over and over again in Acts. You know, it's God who does the work. Um, you know, you'll read about the, the apostles you know, uh, uh, praying, uh, teaching, preaching, sharing the gospel in the marketplace. And, and, but then it will always say at the, at, at the end of that, and God added to their number daily. Right? Not Peter, not Paul, not Stephen. God. It's God who's, who's working in them, working through them uh, to gather his people. And he's doing it today through, through you. So let me close with this. Wolf, Miroslav Wolf. Um, he said this, we're meant to live for something larger than our own satisfied selves. Petty hopes generate self-subverting melancholy experiences. You've lived long enough, I think you know that Wolf is right there, right? And certainly our culture encourages us to, to live for our enjoyment and for our satisfaction. Not that enjoyment and satisfaction are wrong, but when they become what you live for, uh, then it becomes a petty goal and a petty hope, uh, and it shrinks you as a person. And, and ultimately, you subvert yourself, as, as Wolf says. But for those of us here who've bowed the knee to Jesus, listen, man, we have been, we have been enlisted by the risen Jesus uh, in his work of, of establishing his kingdom on earth. Uh, 
And the establishment of his kingdom is Jesus mending and transforming and redeeming all of all of the planet. And he's enlisted you in that in that project by being his witness. So as you go out Tuesday into the world, whatever part of the world God has you in right now, and whatever you do in your corner of the world, whether you're a student or a scientist or a researcher or an entrepreneur, a tradesman or an artist, a parent, a spouse, missionary, lawyer, salesperson, teacher, you go. I mean, you do that work. Um, you know, God's given you that work. That's your assignment. But you do it also with the, with the concurrent obligation and privilege of testifying. Giving testimony by your words, by your living, by your, the way you live, the way you do your work, the way you die. Testifying about what Jesus has done and taught. Right? So we need to repent. I need to repent of my petty goals and petty hopes uh, and, and rem- remind myself that I have been enlisted uh, in this project to transform the world as we bear witness to the love of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church Escondido reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.